0: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushtuni narrated by Shelby Luke. This is a
1: Reconstructionist Radio Podcast. Please visit chalcedon.edu to download this and many other articles by Russus John Rushduny. Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Shelby Luke, and I will be reading from Roots of Reconstruction by Russus John Rushduny. Religious Liberty versus Religious Toleration Chalcedon Position Paper Number 31 One of the areas of profound ignorance today is religious liberty and the meaning thereof. The common pattern throughout history, including in the Roman Empire, has been religious toleration, a very different thing. In religious toleration, the state is paramount, and in every sphere its powers are totalitarian. The state is the sovereign or lord, the supreme religious entity and power. The state decrees what and who can exist, and it establishes the terms of existence. The state reserves the power to license and tolerate one or more religions upon its own conditions and subject to state controls, regulation, and supervision. The Roman Empire believed in religious toleration. It regarded religion as good for public morale and morals, and it therefore had a system of licensure and regulation. New religions were ordered to appear before a magistrate affirm the lordship or sovereignty of caesar and walk away with a license to post in their meeting place The early church refused licensure because it meant the lordship of caesar over christ and his church The early church refused toleration Because it denied the right of the state to say whether or not christ's church could exist or to set the conditions of its existence The early church rejected religious toleration for religious liberty. Over the centuries, both Catholics and then Protestants often fought for religious liberty. Over the centuries also, the churches too often capitulated to religious toleration with very evil results. Toleration was productive of fearful evils. First, one church was tolerated and established by the state not by Christ, as the, quote, privileged, unquote, or state-tolerated institution. This, quote, privilege, unquote, called for concessions to the state. These took a variety of forms. It could mean that the state appointed or controlled the bishops, Protestant or Catholic. It meant that only the state could give permission for a meeting of the Church's National Convocation or General Assembly. In a variety of ways, establishment meant an establishment under the state's control. At its best, the church was turned into a privileged house slave. At its worst, the church was simply a part of the bureaucracy, and the working pastors were rare and alone. Sooner or later, an establishment meant subservience and bondage to the state. Second, the tolerated church became a parasite. Because it was dependent too often on state aid to collect its tithes and dues, it lived not because of the faith of the people, but because of the state's subsidy. As a result, the state church served the state, not the Lord, nor the Lord's people. When the states turned humanistic and, losing interest in their captive churches, began to cut their privileges and subsidies, Revivals broke out in many established churches as a result. Third, the tolerated or established church became a persecuting church. It could not compete with its now illegal rivals in faith, and so it used the state to persecute its competitors. Both Catholic and Protestant establishments built up an ugly record in this respect. Meanwhile, their humanist foes could criticize their intolerance and speak of this inhumanity as a necessary aspect of Christianity. Fourth, religious toleration leads to intolerance, as it should now be apparent. Toleration is licensure. It is a state subsidy, and those possessing it want a monopoly. Hence, intoleration of competitors results, and the Church becomes blind to all issues save monopoly. In 17th century England, for example, the blindness of the Church of England under Archbishop Laud as he fought the Puritans was staggering. However, when Cromwell came to power, the Presbyterians became a one-issue party, the issue being the control and possession of the Church of England. Had they triumphed, the evils of Laud would have been reproduced. Cromwell balked them. Later, the Presbyterians undermined the Commonwealth and helped bring in the depraved Charles II, who quickly ejected them from the Church of England. In colonial America, uneasy semi-establishments existed. Technically, the Church of England was the established church for all the crown realms, including Catholic Ireland. Ireland was never more Catholic than after England imposed an alien church on the land. Coyle Brittenbaugh, in *Modern and Scepter, 1962, showed how the fear and threat of a full-scale establishment with American bishops alarmed Americans and led to the War of Independence. Meanwhile, in the colonies men began to oppose religious toleration in favor of religious liberty. Here, the Baptists were most important, especially Isaac Bacchus. Bacchus declared, We view it to be our incumbent duty to render unto Caesar the things that are his, but also that it is of as much importance not to render unto him anything that belongs only to God, who is to be obeyed rather than any man. And as it is evident that God always claimed it as his sole prerogative to determine by his own laws what his worship shall be, who shall minister in it, and how they shall be supported, so it is evident that this prerogative has been, and still is, encroached upon in our land." William J. McLaughlin, editor, Isaac Bacchus on Church, State, and Calvinism Pamphlets, 1754 through 1789, page 317, Harvard University Press, 1965. The defendants of establishment or toleration became, Bacchus said, quote, Caesar's friend, unquote, citing the Pharisees who said to Rome's magistrates about Jesus, quote, if thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend, unquote. John 1912. We cannot make the state the definer of man's duty to God, as the establishment-toleration position does. This position, Bacchus held, takes matters of faith from the conscience of man to the councils of state, and thus undermines true faith. Bacchus saw that the new country would have no unity of establishment and toleration became lawful in the Federal Union. Bacchus quoted Cotton Mather, who said, quote, Violences may bring the erroneous to be hypocrites, but they will never bring them to be believers. Unquote. The heart of Bacchus's position was this: quote, religion, meaning biblical religion, was prior to all states and kingdoms in the world, and therefore could not, in its nature, be subject to human laws. Unquote. Page 432. The First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution replacing religious toleration and establishment with religious liberty was the result of the work of Bacchus and many other churchmen. It represented a great and key victory in church history. Now, however, religious liberty is dead in the United States. It only exists if you confine it to the area between your two ears. Instead of religious liberty, we have religious toleration. Now, Religious toleration is the reality of the situation in Red China and Red Russia. In both cases, the toleration is very, very limited. In the United States, the toleration is still extensive, and most churchmen fail to recognize that the states and the federal government are insisting that only toleration, not liberty, exists, and the limits of that toleration are being narrowed steadily. Thus, Senator Ernest F. Hollings of South Carolina has given expression to the position of the regulators and tolerationists writing to 1982, quote, Tax exemption is a privilege, not a right. It is not only proper but constitutional that the government condition that privilege on the constitutional requirement of non-discrimination. Religious freedom is a priceless heritage that must be jealously guarded. But when religious belief is contrary to the law of the land, then it is the law, not religion, that must be sustained. The 1964 Civil Rights Act provided there be no discrimination in institutions receiving federal financial assistance, and the courts have interpreted this to mean that no public monies be appropriated directly or indirectly through tax exemption to those institutions that discriminate, unquote. Letter by Hollings, the Reagan Bill, S-2024, to control Christian schools. Senator Hollings has, with many, many other members of Congress, first replaced religious liberty with state toleration. Tax exemption originally meant no jurisdiction by the state over the church because the power to tax is the power to control and destroy. Now these humanistic statists tell us it is a subsidy. Tax exemption is called, quote, federal financial assistance, unquote. And the courts hold that controls must follow assistance from the civil treasury. This means a mandate to control churches in every facet of their existence, including Christian schools, colleges, seminaries, employees, etc., in the name of controlling federal grants. Second, Hollings and others, including many judges, hold that this means that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 must take priority over the First Amendment. The civil rights laws forbid discrimination in terms of race, and also a number of other things, including creed. The evidence is accumulating that federal authorities believe that they have now the legal right to require churches to ordain women and homosexuals. On January 26, 1982, to a group of us meeting with Edwin Meese and eight or ten Justice Department lawyers in the White House, Meese, a Lutheran layman, said flatly that this was within the legitimate power of the federal government. This means that the Church, in terms of the same laws, can be forbidden to discriminate with respect to creed. This would mean equal time for all creeds, including humanism and atheism, in every church. In the worldwide Church of God case, the court held that a church and its assets belongs not to the members thereof, but to all people, all citizens. Third, the position of Hollings, Reagan, before him, Carter, the Justice Department, the Internal Revenue Service, the Labor Department, the Treasury Department, and the several states is that the only, quote, freedom, unquote, That the church can have is that activity which the state chooses to tolerate. Toleration on any and all activities is subject to regulation, controls, and oversight. This is, of course, totalitarianism. The fact is that religious liberty is dead and buried. It needs to be resurrected. We cannot begin to cope with our present crisis until we recognize that religious liberty has been replaced with religious toleration. The limits of that toleration are being steadily narrowed. If Christians are silent today, the Lord will not be silent towards them when they face the judgment of His Supreme Court. There is a war against biblical faith, against the Lord, and the men waging that war masquerade it behind the facade of non discrimination, subsidies, legitimate public interest, and so on. All this is done in the name of one of the most evil doctrines of our time public policy. Nothing contrary to public policy should have tax exemption, and some hold any right to exist. Today, public policy includes homosexual rights, abortion, and established humanism, and much, much more. The implication is plain, and with some it is a manifesto. No one opposing public policy has any rights. The public policy doctrine is the new face of totalitarianism. It has all the echoes of tyrannies old and new, and with more muscles. What is increasingly apparent is that the triune God of Scripture, the Bible itself, and all faith grounded thereon, are contrary to public policy. Christianity has no place in our state schools and universities. It does not inform the councils of state. Every effort by Christians to affect the political process is called a violation of the First Amendment and, quote, the separation of church and state, unquote. Our freedom of religion is something to be tolerated only if we keep it between our two ears. A war has been declared against us, and we had better know it, and we had better stand and fight before it is too late. We may be able to live under religious toleration, but it will beget all the ancient evils of compromise, hypocrisy, and a purely or largely public religion. It will replace conscience with a state license, and freedom with a state-endowed cell of narrow limits. This is the best that toleration may afford us in the days ahead. But the Lord alone is God, and He does not share His throne with the state. If we surrender to Caesar, we will share in Caesar's judgment and fall. If we stand with the Lord, we shall stand in His Spirit and power. Quote, Stand fast therewith in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage, Galatians 5, 1. At the heart of that yoke of bondage is the belief in fear that the powers of man and the state are greater than the power of God. It is bondage to believe that man can prevail, or that man can frustrate God's sovereign and holy purpose. The only real question is this. Will we be a part of the world's defeat and judgment, or a part of the Lord's kingdom and victory? June, 1982 On Giving to the Rich, the Middle Class, and the Lower Class Chalcedon Position Paper, Number 32 The idea explicit in our title is hardly a popular one. In an age which propagates and exploits class conflict, it is clearly not popular to speak of giving to anyone, The popular reaction will be something like this. What do the rich need that we should give them? The middle class is self-righteous, smug, and censorious. What does it deserve but contempt? As for the lower class, what should those lazy good-for-nothings get? They are already milking us for handouts, welfare, or grossly higher wages. So runs the popular reaction. This should not surprise us. The modern Darwinian worldview rests on the concept of a lawless nature, the struggle for survival and conflict in all areas. Class conflict, as Marx saw, is a necessary development of such a faith. Hence, all areas of human life view all others with suspicion. The conflict of interest view of society pits classes against one another and makes for the politics of confrontation. The origins of this view go back to Hegel, to his view of life as conflict leading to synthesis, and then conflict afresh leading to another brief synthesis. In the Secret Six, Otto J. Scott has shown how this view led to war in 1860. It was first termed, quote, a civil war, unquote, by a Virginian. In the North, the abolitionists worked, not for peaceful solutions, but confrontation, war and devastation as the answer in the south where only a very small minority owned slaves and the majority hated slavery extremists also worked for confrontation and conflict in 1858 these extremists sought to reopen the slave trade make very cheap slaves available in great numbers and thereby include non-slave owning citizens in their cause In both North and South, extremists who believed in the social value of conflict set the temper of political discourse and overwhelmed the uninvolved peoples. There is a second factor in the conflict of interest faith. Not only does it create social warfare, but inner psychological warfare. As a result, modern man is more so than men of other eras at war with himself. Not only does he hate other social classes, but he is consumed with self-hate. As a result, most heirs of wealth have problems with themselves. The world of Darwin, rather than Romans 8.28, governs their psychology. They see themselves as guilty because they are rich, and all too often use their wealth to try to atone for their affluence. They will be suspicious of others and given to hating themselves. The middle class is no better off. All too many younger members of it can only speak of their parents with venom. For them, the ultimate and unforgivable sin is to be content with a good suburban home, a good income, and good friends, and virtue is equated with feeling guilty and miserable about the plight of man. The lower class is no different. It sees those above it as in conspiracy against the poor, and poverty is somehow a creation of others... Of society, of the system, or something else in short. For example, one inner city young man delighted in throwing paper towels on restroom floors to mess up things, and candy wrappers, cigarette butts, and the like on the neatly manicured lawns of the well to do to express his hatred of their concern for cleanliness. In all three classes, class hatred and self hatred go hand in hand. Why then talk about giving to all three classes as a duty? Why bring up a subject which is apparently so remotely possible of attainment? One of the great evils of humanism in the modern age is its equation of things that are with norms. The Kinsey studies of human sexuality mark the social triumph of this faith. For Kinsey, whatever occurred in nature was hence natural and therefore normal. This meant that child molestation and homosexuality were normal and simply a variation in normal human behavior. Lamar and Corinne Strickland of the Strickland Christian School tell of a well-to-do mother who transferred her superior daughter to a depraved state school situation because the child supposedly needed to learn to live with reality. What the mother was in effect saying was that the Lord God is not real but that drugs, illicit sex, and humanism are real. To live with reality is to live with the God of Scripture and His law word. Any other way of life is living with illusions and with evil. God declares, quote, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me, unquote. Isaiah 45, 5 To try to live without Him or in contempt of Him and His law is to invoke His judgment. Because we are God's creation and servants, we have a total obligation to obey Him and to meet His requirements towards one another. We have a commandment of love towards one another, which means keeping the law, which is love in action. Romans 13.8. What can we give to the rich? Like men of all estates, they need to know and obey the Lord. With respect to their persons It will not do for us to set ourselves up as judges over men, and to judge them as a class. Every class has its own characteristics. The sins of others are always more offensive to us than our own sins, which to us are, quote, understandable, unquote, and even lovable sins. The rich are not ipso facto knaves. They are often able, useful, and very capable men. Many of them are active in Christian Reconstruction in their own ways. They are carrying on, quietly and often anonymously, effective work among minority groups, the poor and the unsaved. Like all of us, they need respect, understanding, and appreciation, nor for their checkbooks, but for themselves as persons. Like the rest of us, the rich need friends, not parasites. The rich need a sense of omission, not a, quote, bite, unquote, on them. They need respect and help when they have a sense of mission, not attempts to get on, quote, the gravy train, unquote. Above all else, the rich need from us the love God requires us to show to all men. To see them as targets of class conflict and hatred is to sin against both God and man. The middle class is often the target of hatred because of the widely fomented hostility towards, quote, the Protestant work ethic, unquote. now in the United States, the common property of Catholics and Protestants. It is an ironic fact that wealth, great or small, earned in sports or entertainment, is seen as legitimate, but if earned in industry or business, is somehow illegitimate. Because 19th century radicals associated Christianity with the middle class, much of the hatred of the middle class is still in part A hatred of Christianity, even though the association is no longer valid. The middle class includes most of our modern population. Efforts to destroy it are thus equivalent to efforts to destroy our social order, not to remake it. To despise the middle class is to despise work and thrift and most of the people of our time. The middle class needs to be respected and appreciated, not only as an economic and socially stabilizing force historically but as people who like all others are created in god's image we are to love all men and god exempts none from his commandment of love we are to love them by loving his law and keeping it and by being true neighbors one to another leviticus nineteen eighteen. the lower class is not exempt from the law of love some may lack the opportunity to better themselves and have the ability to do so. Others may simply have less than mediocre abilities and goals, and to be so does not make any man an object of contempt. The Bible makes sin the line of division, not class, social, or economic status. However, much modern man may prattle on about social and economic quote justice unquote for the poor He is more comfortable around a homosexual with social status than a poor man with none. The line of division is now social and economic status and education, not faith. Sin is not objectionable, but a low status is. One reason why so many today are full of verbal and political concerns for the poor is to mask their personal aversion for them. There is no social or economic cutoff line. For either sin or God's grace, nor can there be for our love and friendship. In brief, the graces and virtues that God requires of us are to be manifested towards all men. The line of demarcation is sin, and sin is to be dealt with only in terms of God's law word, with his judgment applied and also his salvation proffered. No man is our possession and therefore no man is ours to judge in terms of our human distinctions. Quote, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Unquote. Psalms 24, 1. Therefore the world and all men can only be viewed, judged, governed, and received in terms of God's word and will, not our own. This brings us to a cardinal sin of the modern age. Humanism and evolution posit an original nothingness, a primeval chaos. Out of this impersonal void, the cosmos evolved. Consciousness and personality are latecomers in a, quote, universe, of supposedly billions of years in age, and both are likely in time to disappear in terms of this view. This means that material forces, mindless and lawless, govern the life of man, not a personal God. Ultimacy is thus impersonal, not personal, mindless, not mindful. The intellectual and scientific attitude calls for dealing with reality, therefore in abstract terms. Thus, sociology deals with impersonal trends, social forces, and the like, not God and man in a totally personal universe. capital, unquote, deals with the labor force, not persons, and unions negotiate with, quote, management, unquote, and, quote, capital, unquote, not persons. Each depersonalizes the other and then wonders why there is no communication or why a credibility gap exists. If a man refuses to treat me like a person, how much credibility will he have with me? If someone tries merely to use me, However correct his outward demeanor, I will soon resent him. We have depersonalized one another, and we do not understand why others have no liking for us. We like an impersonal world, because it enables us to avoid personal responsibilities for others, and we wonder why, quote, alienation, unquote, conflict, and social warfare prevail. We reduce persons to members of classes, and we wonder why there is a class conflict. Do any of us, except the self-conscious, revolutionary, think of ourselves as essentially a member of a class rather than a person? For that matter, does God pigeonhole us as members of a particular class, or by income, social status, or race? We must see ourselves and one another as God sees us not as our contemporary world does. The Lord God sees us as creatures made in His image. Genesis one twenty-six 26 26-28 And we dare not view ourselves and our fellow men any differently. Because God is no respecter of persons, we cannot respect persons in our judgment either. We must view them in terms of His law word. Deuteronomy 1, 17. And His criterion is Himself and His law. Even then, God is patient, and up to a point sends His reign and Son to the just and the unjust, Matthew five forty-five, Deuteronomy 28, 12, 23, and 24. The extent of our departure from the Lord is seen in the extent to which we allow human distinctions, however real, to be our determining premise in judgment, rather than God Himself. What social classes are now giving one to another is hatred and warfare. In judging one another, they are insisting on playing God and in setting up their own criteria as a new law for man. The modern age makes much of the, quote, the common good, unquote, and, quote, the general welfare, unquote. We forget that these terms go back into medieval law and practice. Their meaning at times was defective in Hellenic. At other times, it was biblical. A common statement was in Wycliffe's words, Every common good is better than any private one. The great line of demarcation has been the meaning of Every common good. It has had two meanings. First, it has often meant and now commonly means the humanistic, statist, general welfare as defined by man. In this tradition, the rulers, philosopher kings, or elitist planners of the state define the common good and thus play God. The state then becomes a God walking on earth. We are suffering greatly today from this false, deadly, and heretical view of quote, the common good. Unquote. In effect, it means the common tyranny. The second meaning of quote, the common good unquote, is that common moral law and requirement made by God for all men. The common good, then, is the kingdom of God and the reign of God's justice in the lives of all men. It means the grace of God in the life of man applied in all our relationships so that we manifest the Holy Spirit in human action. The common good, in this sense, rests on common prayer, on common faith, and on a common life in Christ. We will then be, quote, members one of another, unquote. Ephesians 4:25, and not of a social class, July, 1982. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus.
2: It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. The love he shown us by his pain that very prize. It was there at Calvary's dream where he died for you. Serves we should to Jesus. We need to praise His holy name. Praise His name. Lift up your voice and sing. Praise His name and hear our sovereign King. Christ has set you free, set you free.